Hello everybody, this is Emperor Nuro and his apocryphal marketing tales. Mind the road, mind your coffee, and let's get it on! The word sexist has recently suffered a sloppy overuse. Sometimes it is rightfully used to characterize the misdemeanor and harsh language demonstrated by the real offender, sometimes it is itself the harsh language used to silence and witch hunt people you don't like. Other times, though, it is downright a conversation stopper. Now, imagine a scenario where it would actually start a conversation. Having a hard time? Let me help you out, then. Us humans have an up-and-down history when it comes to stink. Yes, stink. S-T-I-N-K. We're famously good at picking up a bad scent, albeit not nearly as good as our poachers, of course, and notoriously bad at combating one. Although toiletries are now a booming multi-billion dollar market, many are yet to discover the gospel of good smell. At least that's what a typical rush hour subway ride strongly suggests. And yes, I'll be calling it toiletries and not beauty products, a glossy euphemism contrived by the industry to sell you the idea of your ugliness. I've had the misfortune of knowing some moguls from this industry, wed to laggy models who can work up as much of a scruple as their skull does intellect. If you're attentive enough, you may have noticed by this time that this podcast advocates the use of take-no-prisoners honest English language and vehemently opposes pandering to a woeful taste and even poor judgment. So, toiletries it is, then. Different researchers have argued for varying numbers, but let's say our species is approximately 150,000 years old. We spent roughly 149,800 of them largely MIA and began seriously searching for a dope smell formula only in the mid-19th century. As you can see, it took us forever to realize that natural doesn't always equal drip. Hello, my Gen Z fans! Liquid soap, a precursor to modern body wash, wasn't patented until the mid-1860s, and the prototype of modern deodorant came a full three decades later, to a lukewarm reception at best. So when the deodorant even tried to slither its way into the market, that very market's pushback was legendary. Nobody went, Oh, finally those squelchy armpits of mine shall not be malodorous, and those frisky lawn tennis smashes will come easier on my capricious body. No, not even close. The dismayed inventors and early adopters had to go overboard to make people reconsider. And boy, did they come up with something spunky and irreverent to facilitate the tough sell.
the naughty saga of the prehistoric antiperspirant followed a classical reverse Cinderella startup plotline. In the wee years of the 20th century, a talented Cincinnati, Ohio guy with no business acumen named Abram D. Murphy invented liquid sweat suppressant. But no, not to make the American underarms ooze lavender and rose petals with citrus and oats, not even close. The imaginative dude was a physician, and his solution helped prevent surgeons' hands from sweating profusely in operating rooms. But enter his daughter. She thought her medical dad was definitely onto something and tried pitching the liquid bad boy to contemporary ladies as an effective extinguisher of a cesspool armpit aroma. She didn't wow the public, though. Potential customers found the offering sus. Well, except maybe they phrased their concern differently. But listen carefully. A deodorant was a concern to them, while armpit stench wasn't. Sure, back in the day, people were oblivious to the 21st century brain science that tells us that the perception of sweat and other unsavory smells or sights is somewhat automatic. It sends a specific bilateral brain region called insula, as you may or may not remember from the first episode of this podcast, spiraling into overdrive. And when these tiny pockets of disgust fire up, your brain is typically up to no good. <laughs> How many know this in the 21st century, I wonder? But anyway, because of the lack of this enlightening knowledge and online cesspools called social media, high society, and even low society for that matter, from a century back, was only beginning to realize the world was full of schmoozers and haters. But they are way better at schmoozing and hating when the object of their disdain is out of an extended fist's reach. So they literally thought everyone else was okay with their stench. I tend to tell those who are prone to romanticizing the epochs of yore, get this, the world wasn't the way it was portrayed in the novels and paintings, however realistic. The world wasn't all about men in wackadoo suits, women in quaint dresses, waltzing around a ballroom, eventful dating histories, and obsessive shopping sprees at bespoke tailor's stores. No. Neat lines of horseshit stretching along the city's cobblestone central streets, and a stuffy sour stench of bad armpit odor were a big presence too. Murphy's daughter splurged a king's ransom, essentially trying to market the product that just wouldn't sell. Moreover, the Murphys went out on a limb and took out a loan to venture a shot at mass-producing the damn deodorant. And as the young girl was already contemplating a sweat-free yet dirt-poor eternity and debt, and probably rustling up a lemon tuna sandwich, the 1912 Atlantic City Expo rolled round at first, things were going gloom and doom, just as before. And I can almost picture the edgy Edna Murphy biting her nails and cussing under her breath at nonchalant visitors. But in the sweltering heat of the summer months, attendees were pouring sweat. And some began 
caving in to the unbearable sting and armpit stains. So they eventually applied the star cross deodorant. Hmm, surprise, surprise, it worked. Deal closed that, right? Mm, you couldn't be more wrong, actually. Not that fast. Trying to persuade people, and most notably women, proved to be a continuous uphill battle. But whoever gave it a shot was pleasantly surprised by the effect. Hmm. So the main challenge, it turned out, was to get the permanently musty potential customers to spritz some onto their bodies. And yes, I've used the verb spritzed, because that's what they did. Because it wasn't a stick antiperspirant, but a bottled toilet water, as it was marketed back in the day. Armed with these reflections, Murphy's spearheaded campaign elected a two-pronged marketing approach, namely merciless shaming and intimidation. First, the campaigners launched a series of magazine articles featuring cartoonish portrayals of anxious and embarrassed women on the streets, in bustling downtown public spaces, and on the beaches, sunbathing and lingerie. All of them were plagued by the revolutionary and almost blasphemous notion that don't tell anyone, okay? Exuding confidence and exuding bad odor might not mash well at the end of the day. The advertised product was named Mum, by the way. Some of the juicier headlines and captions read, She's never learned the first rule of lasting charm. And... Don't let your dress offend with armhole odor. The most humiliating moment in my life when I overheard because of my unpopularity among men. Ladies were cautioned that, quote, men can be such awful gossips too, unquote. And the photo showed two gregarious gentlemen tittle-tattling and gesticulating in a frolicsome manner and a crestfallen, beautiful girl with perfectly coiffed hair, with her hands on her head, apparently eavesdropping on their chatter and tearfully going, What? Another clipping pictures a small dog, maybe a dachshund, looking up at her sad and lonely owner and admonishing her, it's a grand old world. Woof. And you're missing it. Woof, woof. I started out this episode with the word sexist, not just for shock value. Today, this kind of ads would certainly be decried as such for, one, the body odor shamed just women, and two, the only discernible connotation was one of flirting, dating, making out, and... <clears throat> You're getting my drift. As if that was the only thing women were preoccupied with. <laughs> Importantly, my analysis is that Adna Murphy offering her toilet water at the Atlantic City Fair could be described as an event ambush tactic on top of experiential exposure, often employed by guerrilla marketing proponents. But magazine sketches definitely weren't guerrilla marketing because getting published in magazines with an enviable readership in the pre-internet and even pre-television world cost a tidy packet. What it did represent, though, was a textbook example of aggressive shockvertising, 
Mum and their tribe were the Smith brothers of toiletries when it came to the noble cause of staving off the foul, bodily smell. And the deodorant campaign didn't stop at that. Now, before we keep rolling, I have a teensy favor to ask. Please follow my podcast. I won't be standing you or sitting cross-legged in your living room, talking politics and shit, I promise. Google and Wikipedia won't tell you the stories I'm carefully piecing together, let alone break them down in neuromarketing terms. Following me is just one click away for you, and it'll help you catch the fresh episode before everybody else inquisitive enough is using this knowledge. It'll show me, also, that my efforts do mean something to people overwhelmed with disinformation and motivational pap and spoon-fed junk science. So, tick that circle, and let's continue our merry roll. Back to Adorno, Dr. Murphy's troublesome invention. To make the promising uptick in sales stick, his family hired a copywriter named James Webb. Now, remember the bit about people initially falsely perceiving the deodorant as a hazard to their health? James Webb's sharp quill quickly turned the BS tables on those who were on the fence and even on steadfast opponents of the icky formulation. Webb was impudent enough to assert that excessive sweating was in fact a medical condition and that it was somehow niftily addressed by the deodorant. A whopper of a claim if you think about it. But you have to do what you have to do, right? The appeal to existential fear bore fruit. Odorano began browbeating the smelly crowd into buying their stuff. And that's when the desperate deodorant maker took another jab. That one didn't come from your traditional super-spreaders of fabrications and claims on insufficient evidence. No, a whole scientific journal ran an article calling out the campaign as flat-out fraudulent, advising the readers that aluminum chloride found in the formulation did pose a risk to their skin health. Bang. It doesn't take a chemist, though, to suss out that bombshell conclusion wasn't backed by a mound of reliable evidence and lab testing, either. So the hyper-motivated, by that time, company pressed on and finally, through a mix of shaming and intimidation, made the concoction a permanent beauty market fixture. Now, here are my humble notes in the margin of this Netflix-worthy storyline. As for the shaming part, wokery aside, it does work when applied sparingly and prudently. The protagonist of episode 2, the Smith Brothers, kinda hammered this controversial idea home. But as for the intimidation part, I'm not a big fan of lying, and I don't espouse it as a viable advertising ruse. Exaggerate all you want. I mean, spar with your audience as best you can. But there's a vanishingly thin line between embellishment and lies. So tread it cautiously and with dignity. Even if a big portion of your target audience appear to be a bunch of morons buying their information and facts from a local rumor mill rather than trying things for themselves and using their own investigative aptitude and critical faculties. 
Fast forward all the way to 1934. I know, we've skipped the Roaring Twenties, the Great Depression, and the Jazz Age, but those are secondary to our story, sort of. And as for some jazz licks, listen to those musical gems composed for my podcast by Serge, a consummate New Orleans revivalist. Anyway, the year is 1934. A fragrance maker by the name of William Lightfoot Schultz, an appellation more fitting for a badass pirate, established the Schulten Company. Originally, he conceived it as a perfume manufacturer targeted at women. But the experienced producer of fragrance soap and shaving lotions, who'd sold his previous enterprise to American Razor Blade, clearly knew he was about to re-enter a bitterly contested fray. So he wanted to crank things up in the marketing department. As you may have already fathomed out, I strive to pick out unconventional firms and creators for my podcast and have no time or energy whatsoever for copycats, corporate shysters, and banality. Schultz's genius was that it didn't rush the sales come what may, and instead put a premium on the marketing side of things quite ahead of his time. Although he had hired a good nose for his future fragrant offerings, he intuited packaging and publicizing his products could play a pivotal role. The pirate-named entrepreneur was right on the money. Now, normally I'm not the guy to push things on a people who counsel, but one thing I'm adamant and unwavering even about, both in relation to startups and full-fledged businesses, is that you need to seek inspiration and listen for advice anywhere your set of ears can tune into nearby sound waves. Don't limit your thought process and brainstorming to the stuffy confines of your boardroom or your headspace, where multiple cognitive biases live rent-free. In episode 3, I gave you an example of regular people I've learned my most valuable lessons from. Schultz, fortunately, didn't hint my advice. He cast his net wherever he could see talkative fish with something insightful to weigh in. One day, as he was strolling up and down an L.A. department store, he chatted up a guy. One account claims it was a furniture salesman, whereas a competing story placed him as a fellow shopper. Since I'm telling you the apocryphal marketing tales, there's often room for versions, especially when it comes to minute details. Either way, the knowledgeable interlocutor told Schultz with regard to furniture sales Colonial American motifs were all the rage. It hit the fragrance maker that he could convert by coming up with the Americana-themed packaging. In retrospect, the relevance of the subject may have also been strongly evidenced by Francis Scott Fitzgerald's novels, whose author was, apart from the booze, in no small part inspired by the Americana. In 1937, the company debuted a women's scent, but again, the almost hopelessly fierce competition made them reconsider and quickly follow up with a men's cologne, shaving cream, and aftershave in 1938. The brand packaged their products in white colonial pottery bottles. The lineup was called Old Spice. You see, the name itself, Harks us back to the colonial era, 
where spices were a rare, extremely coveted, and breathtakingly expensive commodity. The graphic representation of the trendy motif went even further, as the allspices artist recreated the outlines of ships on the bottles. Mind you, those weren't just random sailboats. They took the trouble to sketch the 1784 Friendship and 1812 Grand Turk Briggs visually redolent of the Age of Sail, a staple of the aforesaid colonial epoch. You most certainly won't tell a brig from a schooner in 2023, let alone recognize the historic watercraft by their outlines. And that's okay, but rest assured, in the 1930s, a lot of American men knew their audience. The overall imagery evoked in the consumer mind by the Schulten Old Spice products was that of status, prestige, provenance, unavailability, and again, scarcity. The exact laundry list of connotations you want to tap into to bolster your audience's craving and subsequent sales. But there's more. The lush smell of the rare oriental herbs, flowers, and fruit, the exquisite texture and all-school colorway of the packaging, the sound of the name, not just spice, but significantly old spice, and the accurately portrayed visual features of the in-demand epoch. These elements, minus the taste, of course, though that could also be inferred if the recipe contained fruit and berries, those elements came together to exemplify the shrewdest use of the multimodal sensory proposition. A whole 65 years before neuroscience and behavioral economics came to evaluate and describe the power of such a marketing move. Given the ingenious advertising strategy and marketing tactic, as well as the lack of proper competition, Allspice swept the man's toiletry market. In the subsequent World War II years, the popularity of their products skyrocketed, and so did the sales. Allspice was in its dazzling prime, living off the major army supply contractor's money. The company thought they'd struck gold. And why wouldn't they, indeed? All the makings of the enduring success were there. But the very move and affiliation that propelled them to peerless fame back in the day would backfire on the brand decades later and deal them a near-lethal blow. A disclaimer for you, I'm not an amnesic in search of urgent medical care, so don't you fret about that. But it's at least the third time I bring this crucial fact to your attention. Bodily secretions and excretion products, mold, decomposition, certain insects have one thing in common. They all instantly trigger your capricious and vigilant insular cortex and stir up the emotion of disgust. That's the worst predictor of purchasing decisions, and the last thing you want to see light up on an fMRI scan when testing your product's appeal and likability. It begs the question, though, how do you advertise something that by definition involves these revolting stimuli and purports to combat, say, bad odor? Is there any workaround? Well, turns out there is. You just emit 
this part altogether and switch your target audience's focus to a completely different domain, arousing emotions, sensations, and experiences that have nothing to do with the problem your product really aims to solve. Some companies fare worse, like, say, Unilever's Rexona, in their quest to be as specific, credible, and evidence-based as it gets, their commercials show pernicious bacteria attacking your body and proudly cite the exact figures, how many and what type of bacteria their antiperspirants kill. Now folks, that's a no-no in marketing, a waste of money and a hefty self-inflicted roadblock preventing customers from making in-store decisions in your favor. Allspice, on the other hand, furnished a handsome solution. But in doing so, they blew the toiletry market into a whole new dimension of poking stereotypes and gender-specific cliches that would now be considered by so many as obnoxious. Are they really obnoxious to your subconscious mind, though? Uh, to a degree, I'd say a firm maybe, but certainly not as obnoxious as the imagery I've listed earlier. Again, exercise good judgment, take precautions, twiddle those cheekiness dials up and down, choreograph your ads to suit your particular audience, and it'll cut it. Allspice didn't just extol and celebrate the perceived virtues and perks of masculinity. Uh, masculinity may be a gross understatement here. Here's why. In effect, they promoted the image of a stud, a hunk to whom self-actualization and performance in the bathroom was of utmost importance. The company invoked a female character named Joan Daly, an embodiment of visual attractiveness and fashion trends of the day, portrayed by a model, Miss Massachusetts, 1953, who encouraged male customers to wear Allspice products. In one of the iconic ad posters, she dons a mini dress, flashes a pensive smile, and with an irresistibly naughty facial expression, urges you to make the right pick. Apparently, her hypersexual vibe propped up by an index finger playing with her upper lip, was spurred by a whiff of an allspice aftershave. Odd. But it effectively straddled the beeline to a dreamy male subconscious mind. If the crowned beauty pageant queen says so, you better oblige. Even if she's just a picture talking to you through a photo lens, and not an incarnate presence. I didn't use the phrase a whole new dimension, just for lack of a better cliché. It was a new dimension of naughtiness. And exploiting the carnal vices further, the company batted out an ad featuring a teen girl. In 1962, Stanley Kubrick shot his screen adaptation of Nabokov's Lolita. And although I'm hazarding an educated guess here, the girl in the picture, surrounded by fancily packaged allspice goodness and stating, because my heart belongs to daddy, is strikingly reminiscent of the book character, popularized by the movie. I know from 2023, it all looks gross and hands down inappropriate. I agree. But the point of good marketing, you see, 
is to bypass the rational, analytical, and evaluative checkpoints of the neocortex and signal to sometimes devious and consciously shameful circuitries of the ancient subconscious mind and its dirty legacy. And this is far from virtue signaling. Hence the unwanted, yet crudely realistic conclusion that sometimes, to blast the effect of your ads, borderline ignominious vice signaling proves more effective than insincere and nauseatingly people-pleasing virtue signaling. Besides beguiling the male customer base with images of cute catwalk regulars, Old Spice ran a series of ads homing in on poster boys for masculinity, the way they viewed it. Aside from continuous use of boring stereotypes and not-so-deep metaphors, they made an incursion into the realm of linguistics. One ad, where the brand aligns itself with the alleged pinnacle of masculinity, gridiron football, sports a hairy gent with a palpable air of furious contempt wielding a razor handle. The caption reads, and to voice this I really need to affect red pepper, Hexor Reynolds eats quarterbacks for breakfast. That doesn't mean he's not sensitive. It involves an easy-to-decipher pun on the two meanings of the adjective sensitive. Another poster shows you a retro-stylized crest that assembled the whole gamut of masculine symbols and paraphernalia. A bear, hot dogs, a high-end sports car, bikini-clad girls, power drills, a treasure chest, a boat anchor, a wristwatch, and a baseball bat. At the center of the fictional coat of arms is the product itself, a trademark red bottle of the allspice antiperspirant. The motto plate reads, Smelcome to manhood. A one-time portmanteau word is, by the way, a good trick to pamper your audience with a dash of originality. Here's another one. Believe in your smelth. Pictured is an apparently allspice-emboldened heartthrob outsprinting the thoroughbreds in a horse race. But puns and portmanteaus, however fresh and effective, could do little to harness the impending doom. Remember the brand's early lucrative association with World War II soldiers? By the late 1980s, consumers were growing increasingly wary of the company's unavoidable image and legacy of a war attribute and questionable taste of yesteryear. Indeed, a PTSD-riddled Vietnam vet couldn't bear to use the product that, against his will, kept sparking and reigniting the memories of the horrendous and pointless bloodbath. Youngsters, on the other hand, were looking for toiletries that differed from the ones their dads and grandpas used. Grandpa can indeed be a bottomless bit of anecdotes and alleged wisdom, but probably the last thing a virile Lothario wanted to borrow from his old man was the smell. Struggling to explore new marketing avenues, Allspice sales hit the skids. And in 1990, the declining business was acquired by Procter & Gamble. At first, the corporation felt like it was stepping into a losing battle. However, the Allspice brand somehow stayed afloat for one more decade. Contrary to market forecasts, 
they managed to rediscover the seemingly long-lost mojo. Their 2008 Swagger lineup campaign is widely believed to have turned the market tides. Do you think they revolutionized the marketing scene? Mm, not really. The move that proved victorious for them involved another time-tested trick. Anticipate the concerns and pet peeves of your audience and address them head-on. Old Spice did it aggressively as they flipped the irksome grandpa smell connotation right onto the consumers with two lines. One, if your grandfather hadn't worn it, you would be alive, typed in all caps on the back of the deodorant stick. And the other one, it worked for your granddad, accompanied with a black and white image of a kissing young couple. Turns out they can churn out new and more modern fragrances, and that whatever it was that helped Grandpa muscle his way through life can work for you just as swimmingly. The name Swagger in an intricate serif script font wasn't just slapped onto the new product range. The company itself seemed to have regained their former Smelfs Swagger. A 2010 Daytona 500 ad enunciated their updated tagline, Smell like a man, man. Or should I try to strike a Denzel Washington note? Smell like a man, man. Is that what they meant? I don't know. Their recent 2019 ad promotes male friendship. All Spice Swagger almost resurrects a depressed and dying man in blockbuster-type footage. Effective? Up to you to judge. If you've listened to, to the very end, reach out for your favorite clone, swirt some, and bask in your masculinity or just confidence. I recently read their product description and the perks they tout. I noticed they had indeed missed a beat by subbing the word masculinity with confidence. But what the heck? Confidence, after all, can be projected by men and women alike, or whoever you identify as. I hope you as a person, and you as a brand, are projecting a good dose of it, too. This one's finally over. You're most smalcome to my next episode, where, unlike Old Spicer today, I'll continue exploring the colonial theme. Thanks for listening. And if you like it, please consider subscribing. I'm Roman, also known as Emperor Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, both here and on YouTube. I'll be sharing practical stories like this from the world of unconventional advertising and fresh behavioral insights in my weekly podcast. And by the way, the music to the podcast is composed by a friend, Serge, who absolutely loves all things neuro and viscerally hates all things marketing. Hope your brain is having a snazzy week.